all kids ages three through sixth grade. You are dismissed to go with Miss Liz in the back. Those of you who are staying with us, I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of 2 Samuel this morning, the book of 2 Samuel. So we do have the right PowerPoint this morning. Now, we have done a thorough investigation and found out what the problem was last week. And the problem, just as I foretold, was that I had indeed sent the wrong PowerPoint to our media team. Now, we could go about and throw out using words like incompetent or inept, silly, goofy, all these things. But none of those are really helpful for us in this moment. Instead, I think what we need to really focus focus on is how through that chaos... We gave our great team an opportunity to rise to the occasion. So Joseph ran into my office, got into my computer, found the right one, sent him up to Paul, who got him into the, into the computer. So what we really need to take away from this is what incredible leadership I gave to gave my team an incredible opportunity. That's right. That's right. To shine and show their skills. So, having said that, (laughs) I know I do need one for my great leadership. That's right. (laughs) Let's turn in your Bibles as we continue on in the series in the covenants to the book of 2 Samuel chapter 7. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now when the king lived in the house of the Lord, he had given them rest from all of his surrounding enemies. And the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, for the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. With that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go, tell my servant David, thus says the Lord. Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore... Thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture and from the following the sheep that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I shall make for you a great name, a name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel. And will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more. As formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers... I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he will be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart him. As I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all of this vision, Nathan spoke to David. And the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Father, we thank you for your word. May it seek deep into our very being this morning. Changing our thoughts, yes. 
Give us insight into your word and how your scripture folds together, but may it fold, go even deeper into our heart to change our very affections. And moving our affections, may it change the way we live so that every moment may be lived in worship for you. And we pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. You know, as we're moving into this time of year, of course, it's a great thing for us to be able to look at, and, and many of us may be anticipating certain things from the holiday, but there is also something that can be somewhat of an anxiety for some people, at least if you're like me, and it's, it's, it's something that goes along like this. What if somebody gets me a present, and I didn't get them something? Or what if somebody sends us a Christmas card, and we didn't send them one? So it's almost like for Christmas cards, you want to keep a few back to be ready, you know, to give just in case. It's like, oh, no, I can't believe I forgot that person. Or, or if you, you're given a gift. And I remember growing up, there was this one year where we went and had Christmas with a, an aunt and uncle. And we didn't think we were supposed to be giving gifts. And the aunt and uncle gave all of our family gifts. And we had nothing for them. And we just sat there. And it was so awkward and weird. And so the next year we got them gifts, but they didn't give us ones. And it was really awkward and weird yet again. And it's just that kind of that awkwardness because that's the way we feel. As much as we call it a gift, in reality, a lot of times what we mean is an exchange, right? We're exchanging things. We've lost the concept of just receiving a gift because we it makes us feel like oh, they're judging us we have nothing to give them back we feel like we should otherwise we're imposing we're rude we're awkward we're just ungrateful with all these things that we can add to it because so it can have a pressure that we add to it that we show ourselves worthy of receiving a gift by giving a gift right we, show, we try to show ourselves worthy. And in many ways, what we're trying to do is say, I'm not going to let you have a hand over me. And of course, what we find in the Christian scriptures is all of life is grace. It is unmerited as a gift given to us. And so those times in our lives, God gives us these things that crash us down our pride. And teaches us that we can never do something to earn God's favor or love. And as we look at those places, if we understand them correctly, what we typically do is we become undone. Because if we're being honest, we recognize how completely unworthy we are of them. When I was answering God's call for me to go into ministry, we were in Stillwater and we were going to a small little church. We were, we were wondering how we were going to pay for seminary. And this couple at this church who, it's not like we were real close to them, out of nowhere and without telling us, said, we're going to pay for your seminary. And they paid for my entire seminary. All five years. An investment of, I don't know, somewhere probably around $50,000. I wasn't a member of their family. I'd only known them for a few years. Now, I can look at that and, and say, okay, well, surely I'm worthy of this. But as I moved into seminary, I saw there were so many other people who were so much more gifted than I was, so much more intelligent than I was so much more godly than I was, who, who've gone on to have more significant ministries. And you know what? Nobody paid for their seminary. And so you look and say, well, why would I be one that would receive such grace? And you know what the answer is? I have no idea. I can't look deep down and say God has some sort of special grand plan. No, it was just, in many ways, God undoing my pride and saying, I'm going to provide for you. Because all my, my thought process in that is I'm going to get a job and I'll just work my way through seminary. And you know what? I probably would have done it. And it would have been one more step in my feather of my cap of my kingdom moving in there. But God in his grace and his mercy removed that. 
Several years later, after I've been in ministry for quite some time, we happened to go to, uh, back to Stillwater, where that family was. And we, we really hadn't hardly been in Stillwater, probably for 10 years or something like that. And so as Mariana and I were going there, we said, hey, we want to we set up a, a meal with that individual that, 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 uh, that paid for our seminary because we hadn't touched base with them. It's not like they demanded, hey, give us reports. I didn't have to send a report card to them to show my grades. Thank the Lord for that. Um, You know, I didn't have to send a report. Okay, here's my ministry. Here's how many baptisms we've had since we've been in ministry. Here's how many salvations. Here's how many, how the church has grown or anything like that. And so while we were in Stillwater for kind of an unusual situation, we reached out to them and to the the pastor who was at the church at that time. And our idea was, you know what? They have blessed us so much. Let's take them out to a steak dinner and we'll pay for it. And so we got them out. And our idea was, you know what? We're just, we're going to bless them. We're going to pay for this meal. We're going to try to show them how grateful we are. You know what happened? One, one of the, the, the pastors snuck away while we were eating and paid for the whole thing himself. And so here we are, and we're like, I wish we had chosen someplace cheaper. And we're, we're going through all these things. But yet it was God saying, no, no. I'm going to show you unmerited grace and favor. Unmerited love and grace within that. In the covenants as we've been looking through that, as we can try to understand why has God formed this covenant with Abraham? He was from a pagan lands. He was hardly one that was fully faithful throughout all of his life. He showed incredible places of unbelief and doubt. But yet God chose him. And he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And then we see the nation of Israel, a people that violate his commandment within days of one of the greatest rescues ever while he's giving them the commandment. And we see as they go into the land as we're to follow in the book of Judges and and 1 Samuel, they are remarkably unfaithful to this incredible gift that God has given them. Why would he choose them? Because of God is a grace, God of grace and mercy. And then we come into our story, David. And if you were with us throughout 2023, we got introduced to David as we worked through the book of 1 Samuel. And we're going to see even more of his life in 2 Samuel in 2024. But what we see in David is a man who, yes, is a man after God's own heart, which is to say God chose him as his king within there. But David, as we're going to see, and as we've already seen, is hardly a paradigm of, uh, of, of virtue. He is hardly one that we had put on a pedestal of a life that is fully to immolate. Because, you know what, I kind of hope none of you have an affair then commit murder to cover it up. That's kind of a bad thing. Let's not do that. But yet, as we just read, God in his grace and his mercy continues to narrow down and form this covenant with David. Why? Unmerited grace that reveals not what he can necessarily just do if somebody just believes in someone enough, right? Because that's kind of our thought. If we could just invest in somebody enough, think if we, you know, teach a man to fish and he'll, you know, never be hungry the rest of his days, right? That's not what God is about. God is about completely and utterly transforming us in his grace and in his mercy. Now, what we've seen so far is that each of these covenants have been building upon themselves. They're not God all of a sudden doing something new, but they're all part of God's unfolding plan of redemption that he is unfolding over and over throughout Scripture. 
As I, I was explaining to Jack today, you know, uh, the illustration I'd like to use is when you go to the eye doctor, right? And when you first put on the eye doctor, they put that big uh, machine in front of you and they've got the letters out there. And um, when you first begin to read them, they're all blurry, right? And so they'll begin moving through the lenses and they'll get a little bit closer. Okay, is that a little bit more clear? Yes, it's a little bit more clear. But in the process, you go from, yes, I can kind of see something. I think that might be an H. Maybe it's something else. I'm not quite sure. But each lens gets a little bit closer. And with each covenant, what we see is God's getting a little bit closer, the revelation of what he's going to be doing. And of course, we know in the end goal, what he's doing is ultimately restoring Eden, bringing humanity back into the place as God's true image bearers by which they are able to love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. They, they love their neighbor as themselves, and they're in the new Eden and restored in the place of true priests of the living God. And so we saw Abraham, and through what God promises he's going to do through Abraham, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And then we saw last week in the Mosaic Covenant, he formed them into a people, a, a kingdom of priests by which God will demonstrate who he is to the nations and ultimately bring about his salvation. And so he promises now David. And so what we're seeing within this, and we'll make this a little bit more clear, we see yet another lens comes into focus. It's not a new lens. It's not a new uh, board with a new set of letters within there. The, the, the plan of redemption hasn't changed. We just see it in focus a little, little bit more. There's still more lenses to come until we ultimately find its clarity in Christ. But we've come a little bit more. And so in this covenant, for the sake of time, and I'm not going to read, read it. We'll, we'll get back to it in a little bit. But what we see is essentially seven promises of God within there. Now, the first three promises we're going to see is going to be fulfilled partially in David's lifetime. And so there's a kind of a partial fulfillment in his lifetime and in the lifetime of Solomon as well. And so the first is that he's going to make him a great name. Now, if we were reading in 2 Samuel, we'd see that he's already making and have made him a great name. And we saw this in place. And he's also appointed a place for his people Israel. And so we saw, if we were to read, in chapters uh, 6, uh, um, David is going to conquer the city of Jerusalem, taking it back from the Canaanites of the Jebusites, right? Um, and, so they, and so now, more than ever, the land has been purged. It's not completely purged, not yet, but more has been taken place. And, and, and so Israel actually has borders now within there, and there's a place, and a centralized place of worship and so there's a sense of partial fulfillment, but also in which he says there's rest from their enemies. And we would see, and that's, that's going to be described in chapter 8 of 2 Samuel. And then later on in 1 Kings, Solomon even goes on to say that God had given rest on all of Israel's borders uh, on God's, as part of God's faithfulness to the covenant. And so there's a certain amount of rest that takes place. Now, what is here, it's, it's a little bit more difficult to see, but it becomes even more pronounced when you look at some of the other places where the Davidic covenant is described in the prophets and in Psalm 89 and in Chronicles. What you see is there is a call for the king to be faithful. And so there is a part of covenant faithfulness within there. And as the, the kings themselves, like Israel before them, show that they are unfaithful God has to bring in covenantal curses within that to get their attention, so to speak, as part of his judgment and his discipline upon his children whom he loved. Now, what that also means, though, because he's going to have to discipline David's sons, because he's going to have to discipline the nations, and as already kind of made clear from the covenant that we've seen in here, there's a, a particular parts of this covenant that will be fulfilled after David has died. And those, those we see a little bit more in the second part of, chap, of verse 11 through 16. And so 
first is that he's going to make them an established house. In other words, a, a, a dynasty, a house. And as, it's kind of a play on the fact that David's saying, hey, I want to make God a house. Well, what is God's response? It's kind of like when I tried to take my, uh, my sponsor, if you will, the guy who paid for us out to dinner, and I say, hey, I want to, I, I've been blessed by you. I want to bless you. And he's saying, no, that's not the way this works, buddy. You're going to be a recipient of grace. And in doing so, what God is doing is he's showing David, hey, you're not going to build for me a kingdom. I have never once needed you. You need me. And you need to understand that. You need to grasp that within there. Right? And so he says, I'm going to make you a house. I'm going to establish with you an eternal kingdom. Now, this is huge because keep in mind what had happened right before David. You saw a dynasty or what was, could have been a dynasty of Saul, but that was cut short because of Saul's disobedience. What God promises David is you're going to have an eternal kingdom, an eternal throne, and ultimately there's going to be a special son. Right? Now, notice... David's response in verse 18 to all of this. When the prophet Nathan responds and says, no, you're not going to build a house for God. God's going to build you a house. Notice his response. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, oh Lord God. In other words, he's saying, your grace, your power is so big. This, isn't, this is nothing for you to accomplish, accomplish in your power and might. But yet, it's unfathomable for me to think through that. He says this, you have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O oh Lord God. Now, what is this saying? What he's doing is he's recognizing that this covenant that God is making with him, David, its ultimate end and fulfillment will be for all of mankind. What is he doing? He's acknowledging that this covenant is ultimately the moving of the ball forward in the plan of redemption. Is God's moving his covenant promises that he's already made to Abraham and to Moses and the people of Israel, moving it yet farther. In other words, he understands that this is how God is going to continue to bring about this redemption. This isn't something new. So as we look forward, of course, we, uh, we understand and we're going to highlight this in, in, in great depth and detail how this is pointing us ultimately to Christ. And I'm sure many of you, you've already, maybe your mind's going, you're thinking some of the New Testament prophecies. David and one who's just reading through the stories without knowing how it ends or anything further, they're looking back and they're saying, oh, wow, okay. This is looking back as well. This is how God is going to fulfill these covenant promises, right? But here's the problem. As we've already said, they're not worthy. They're broken. And they display their brokenness over and over again. And so, while David's kingdom and dynasty continues to go on, we see the monarchy is completely broken. And it's already broken in David. And so what we're going to see as we move through 2 Samuel, we're going to see David uh, sin with Bathsheba. And immediately you begin seeing all the brokenness in his household just descend into chaos. And then later, Solomon, it starts well, but ultimately he abandons God and begins to, to go into idolatry. And so God begins to discipline, and he, he says, I'm not going to remove you from the, your, your throne. I'm not going to break the kingdom up now because of my faithfulness to David. 
but I'm going to bring up an enemy. So this rest that was on every side, you begin to see God raises up uh, uh, one from Edom who becomes a harasser. So the peace, there's a discipline that takes place. And of course, the kingdom then splits and you have the northern kingdom and then you have the southern kingdom. And they continue on and then the northern kingdom is nonstop, constant brokenness. The kings all fell. And then in the southern kingdom, most of them are exactly the same way. There's a few bright spots here and there, but for the most part, it is a history of brokenness and sadness. And so the king, which is in many ways supposed to be a narrowing, the king is, be, is to be one who, who is the administrator of the Mosaic covenant, is actually one of his chief breakers. The covenant which we saw last week, its sign was Sabbath. It was meant to bring rest upon the people and into the land. And to spread that rest, they actually bring injustice. They actually bring corruption. They actually bring evil and idolatry within there. And so God, not because he's callous, not because he's unfaithful, because he is loving God who seeks just as any parent who sees their wayward son begins to say, we are going to discipline our beloved child out of love for them. He disciplines his people. But that involves them being conquered by enemies. That involves them, the northern kingdom, being wiped out. That involves ultimately leading to the nation of Babylon coming in and taking the people of Israel captive and leading them out. And now you do not have a king on the throne. Now, can you, we can imagine how scary that would be for the king and even for David looking forward. But keep in mind, what have we said? This Davidic covenant is how God is moving the ball forward, not just for the Davidic kingdom, but for all of the other kingdoms, for the kingdom, for the covenant with Abraham, for the covenant with Moses. So it begins to question, is all of the faithfulness of God gone within there? And so you begin to see the, the prophets begin to answer this question. And so Isaiah who was before the exile, but he's prophesying the exile that is to come, prophesying the, the, what's going to take place. He said the, the destruction and the removal that is going to take place. Early on in the book, he says, In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Now, what does he call? He says the root of Jesse. Any of you ever had a tree you're trying to kill? One of those little, you know, cottonwood trees that just spread and you, and you cut it off. What happens? That little booger keeps coming back. It's springing up from the root. You kill it on top, but there's some roots that have something that sprouts out. And so in God's discipline, to discipline this wayward tree that has gone wild and corrupt and evil, he has cut it off, but there's a root that is going to spring up his true descendant of David that's going to take place. And so a contemporary of, of, of Isaiah is Amos. In Amos chapter 9, he says, In that day I will rise up the booth, or kind of the temporary house, of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. So people are saying, well, what about the house of David? That was supposed to be saying, God's saying, it is in complete disrepair. I'm going to rebuild it as of the days of old. Jeremiah, a prophet that takes place later, that is placed both before and during the time of the Babylonian uh, exile, says this, Behold, the days are coming, declared the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as a king and deal wisely. And shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Now keep in mind, what is, they often call Jeremiah the weeping prophet. He is one declaring, hey, accept the fact, folks. Babylon's going to come in. They're going to destroy. He's even going to tell them, as you're in Babylon, 
Pray for the prosperity of the people. Plant gardens. But he's saying, do so in hope. God's not done with the covenant blessings to David. Ezekiel, another prophet during the time of the exile, he says this, they shall not defile themselves anymore. That's referring to his people, Judah, with their idols and their detestable things or with any other transgressions, but I will save them from their backslidings in which they have sinned and will cleanse them and they shall be my people and I will be their God. Remember, we've talked about that. That is covenant language in which the covenant people are dwelling with God in covenant faithfulness. And my servant David shall be king over them and they shall have all and they shall have one shepherd and they shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. And they will dwell in the land that I give my servant Jacob where your fathers lived and they and and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. There is a place. You got a king. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever, and I will make a covenant of peace with them. And it shall be everlasting covenant with them, and I will set them in their land and multiply them, and I will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. And my dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. What is he saying? He's saying all the covenant blessings of David are going to come about. I'm not done with them. What I'm doing now is for their good, to teach them from backsliding, to teach them from their wayward ways. Post-exilic prophet Zechariah, in other words, after the exile, the people are saying, well, wait a minute, we're back in the land, but we still don't have our own kingdom. We don't still have our own king. Well, Zechariah says this in chapter 9, things are still struggling. Rejoice greatly, O daughter Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteousness and salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey and a colt. The foil of a donkey I will cut off the chariot of Ephraim and the war horses of Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And so what we see, quite frankly, and I think this is a lot of times why we struggle with some of the, the prophetic literatures, we're not seeing how they are not just pointing forward to Christ, which of course they are, but they're also looking back to show how God is going to bring about all these covenant promises and faithfulness that he's going to move them forward in some way, and he has given them hope. And as he gives them hope of this king, what he's saying is, don't despair. The covenant promises which God foretold would come about through the Davidic covenant will come about. Not because Israel has earned it, but because of the faithfulness and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we see in Isaiah this great familiar Christmas prophecy. For unto us is born, a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of the peace that will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And so then we see the faithfulness of God come to us in Jesus. We have all these promises. And so the angel comes to this virgin Mary. And notice what he says, Luke 1. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus. And he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. These aren't just good things to say about Jesus. Oh yeah, he's going to be a king. 
They're showing he is fulfillment of God's plan of redemption that has been moving forward within there. And so, and I'm going to move fairly quickly through this section, we see how Christ fulfills each and every one of these promises of God. So the promises to, that, God, that God would make his name great, we see uh, Paul say in Philippians 2, therefore, in these, after Christ has been uh, who <clears throat> died, submitted himself unto death, and risen again from the dead, he says, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Why does he say that? It's fulfillment of the Davidic prophecy. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. The place. Promise a place, right? Well, what does Jesus tell his disciples as he's preparing them for his departure in John 14? Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. So in other words, he's saying this place that was promised, this place where the people of God will be able to find rest, or there'll be no violent men, where there'll be no violence or evil, they'll be able to rest in peace. God's saying, I'm about to accomplish this through my death and my resurrection that I'm about to do. And so we see at the very end of the Bible in Revelation 21, and then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the, for the first heaven and the first earth have passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down, out of the heaven of God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away, and he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write these down. And these things are trustworthy, or these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to, It is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give the spring of water without payment, of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Covenant language. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the adulterers, and all the liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. In other words, he is going to have his city and it will be purified as he will throw out all of the men of violence and of evil that pollute his city. And his people will know rest and peace forever because there will be no more time. Death, no more weeping, no more mourning. All the curse of sin will be undone. The rest, we talked about this last week. Rest from your enemies, Jesus says. And there's other places I can point to, but I really like the one in Matthew. Come to me, all you who labor and heavy laden, I will give you rest. This, the house of the Lord, which he established. John, uh, as Jesus destroys uh, as, as he overturns the, the, the tables in the temple, they ask him, what authority do you have to do this? And what he ultimately says is, I'm going to destroy this temple, which referred to the house of God, and in three days I will rise it up. They said, they laugh at him. Why are you, it took Solomon 46 years to do this, but it then goes on to explain, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. The house of the Lord is ultimately the body of Christ. And then, of course, the faithful son. Jesus, as he begins his ministry, he begins with baptism. And this baptism was a symbol of his anointing as God's chosen one, as his king within there. And John the Baptist didn't want to do it. He says, wait a minute, you should be baptizing me, not the other way around. 
But notice what Jesus says. But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. There's a symbolism that must be done, an anointing that must be done, recognizing his kingship. And then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And so we take all of this in the eternal throne together and we see and we come to the very end of the book of the Bible, the books of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, in the very last chapter. And towards the very end of the last chapter, it's not the last thing he says, but it's close to it. Jesus says this, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the church. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. Translation, I'm the fulfillment of all the, the covenant promises and all the covenant blessings in Christ upon the cross, he took upon himself all the covenant curses upon himself on the cross. And he broke them with his life. And so all the legal debt that was required because of our breaking of the curses was defeated and absorbed in Christ, paid for, if you will, And he offers us this life, these covenant blessings in him today. So what does it mean for us to live in this covenant life of this eternal kingdom? First is recognizing the glory of a personal king. It's important for us to recognize as we look to the birth narratives of Jesus as we come into Matthew right? And we've already established in Matthew, we're anticipating a coming king. And we see a picture of two rival types of kingdom. There's the kingdom of Herod, a kingdom filled with power and glory, a kingdom built from ruthlessness and the ways of the world. One who says, I'm not going to receive everything by grace, but I'm going to take it by power. It comes into conflict with the true king of glory. This true king isn't born in a palace, but born in the middle of nowhere in Bethlehem to a group of nobodies by the name of Joseph and Mary, surrounded by people whom we don't even know their name. Shepherds, nobody, animals. Yet this is the eternal kingdom. This is the victorious king. And he brought his kingdom in of love and peace that would conquer the kingdoms of this world. But in this, what we see is a deeply personal king. A king that would come to know each and every one of us. You see... I'm not somebody who would expect to know anyone famous. I'm not someone who expect to be uh, close to somebody of power or influence. That's who I am. That's who, quite frankly, most of us expect to be. But yet, through the wonder of God's love, this eternal king who sets the world upside down, who says he's going to redeem the entire world through his love and through his power, becomes Emmanuel, God with us. The one through whom the power of his resurrection, the work of the Spirit, has come to say to each and every one of you, I've come to know you and to be known by you. to enter into a relationship with you by grace and love and mercy. One that you can never earn. And by all right, the only thing you deserve is his wrath and his judgment. Yet, he says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. 
He is the king of glory. A king who will never, ever let you down. You know, one of the things that you may be looking at as you move into this time of year and the relationships, one of the things you may be apprehensive of if you may be coming from a family or relationships that have let you down, people that you cannot count on. And so you've come and you're wondering how, you, you almost try to close yourself off emotionally because you wonder, I, I can't handle these people letting me down ever again. What God has demonstrated is he will never let you down. He is faithful. That doesn't mean he's going to do what you want him to do. He is sovereign and he knows his plan and his goodness better than you do. Everything he does, you can trust will be good. You can't say that it'll be pleasant. You can't say that it'll be what you wanted. But you can trust as we have seen the unfolding of his plan, it will be good. And it'll bring glory to him and to his love and the joy of salvation and relationship to you. It's the glory of a personal king that you can know. The second thing that this reminds us is life is about receiving a kingdom, not building your own kingdom. Many of you, you may be like me. You may struggle because you want to be and view your life as self-made. What God will often do in his glorious mercy is crash down our idol of pride. And let me tell you from firsthand experience, that is painful. Because the things which prop you up, that make you feel good about yourself, he will strip away. Until all that remains is his grace and his mercy. But that is the place of joy and hope and wonder that frees you to love rather than protect your own kingdom. As you receive grace and gifts or whatever it may be this, this season, let it remind you that everything you have, that job you're so proud of having that you worked so hard to get, that's ultimately a gift of God's grace. Your health, which you feel has been so great and so wonderful because of all the dieting you've done and the, the hours you spend at the gym, your health, too, is still ultimately a gift of God's grace. That family that have come around because you feel your parenting skills have been so great and so wonderful, gift of God's grace. That marriage... That retirement account, that home, that house, that car, that education, all of it gifts of God's grace. They can be gifts for us to enjoy and love and cherish, or they become idle, rival kingdoms. And what we have seen is God loves you too much to allow you to have a life of your own kingdom. Because when we do that, we are just like Israel. We bring destruction upon our own lives and others. God's mercy is too great for that. His love is too good. As he breaks down our idolatries, he fills us with joy. And so what's amazing is you'll actually be able to love some of those things in a way that is better. Your family, your health, because they are not gods which are demanding life from you, but they're gifts for you to give to the praise of the king. The thirdly, and this is a reminder, Christ is our king, not our advisor. This king loves you with infinite incalculable love. What we see, the demonstration of that love in this commitment to Israel, his commitment to these people, his commitment to David. But ultimately, he is king. And he has called us to submit ourselves before him. 
Not to view what he has told us or his life as simply one cafeteria. A lot of times we look at life as like this cafeteria. And we say, hey, you know what? I want this, this portion of God. Okay, let me put that on the plate. Okay, well, it's Christmas time, so let me put a little extra portion of God on my plate. But hey, I need these other aspects of you know, money, finances, all these other things on my plate. And these are things that are just along the plate with God. What God has called us to understand is he is our everything. And we submit all of our life before him and to him. Now, that becomes frightful when we see how often we fell at this. And this is where, once again, we see the goodness of a God who is merciful and just. And so we come to know this king by trusting in his grace through faith and no other way. By trusting in him that when he died on the cross for our sins, he paid the penalty for our sins. He redeemed us. He atoned for our sins. And in his resurrection, he showed himself to be the son of God in power and glory. The one who was faithful that what he did on the cross was enough. This is a gift you receive. Not one you say, okay, if I do this, guess what, God? I'll pay you back for saving me by going to church. I won't miss a single Sunday in 2024. I won't miss a single day of Bible reading. I'll even start giving into the offering. All those are good things. But if you view yourselves in your relationship with God and saying, if you save me, I'll do X, you've missed the boat. But God says, come to me and trust completely in my grace and in my mercy. And when you do that, his spirit will change you. You will become Lord of your life and you'll find yourselves changed. What you want to do will change. But ultimately, you don't come to him with bargains just as with David, you have nothing he needs, but you, he has everything your hearts truly desire and ultimately everything you need. So come to him today. Let's see if you would bow with me. Father, we thank you for your grace and for your mercy. We confess to you today the different places in our lives where we're trying to set up rival kingdoms, where we want to try to impress you or we want to try to take credit for things. We don't want to just receive your love and your mercy and worship you because of it. So, folks, take a moment and I'll ask the Holy Spirit to reveal some of these places in your heart where you're not just receiving grace, where you're refusing to see his grace in your life. And confess them before God today. And if you're someone who hasn't ever really trusted, or maybe you realize that you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, won't you do that today by faith? Father, we thank you, though we fail you constantly. We see our hope, not in our faithfulness, but in the faithfulness of Christ. Transform our hearts and our loves today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.